electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Sam Bankman-Fried, guilty. One of the biggest financial frauds in American history. He's facing more than 100 years in prison. The disgraced FTX founder convicted on seven counts of fraud and money laundering. Bankman-Fried's father burying his head in his hands. His mother was crying. After a jury's stunningly swift deliberation. It was three hours, including dinner. Including dinner. And dessert. John Stark, a former SEC Internet Enforcement chief on the SBF of it all. He's an absolute sociopath, an absolute egomaniacal lunatic. And the impact on the crypto industry. People should not think that it's safe to go back in the water. It's not safe. We're going to talk about FTX and uh, sure. I, I don't know. Wow, did we get sidetracked. Um, but, you know. It's metaphorical. And three deals to end the UAW strikes. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg weighs in. The bottom line is there, there is more than enough in terms of the value being created for more of it to be shared with the workers who create it. That's the premise, and that's what these negotiations have led to. Plus, Taylor Swift's seemingly endless hold on the economy. She's in your grocery aisle. Yeah, mayonnaise, mayonnaise and ketchup. Not and ketchup not is, is Russian. Yeah. yeah. So this is ketchup plus ranch, ranch. which I think is tangy. like uh, another uh, that's a pretty good combo. It's Friday, November 3rd, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Roll Pro A, up track, stand Andrew by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. What a morning. And now, as we said, to the SBF of it all, uh, the trial, uh, I don't know, it's not the trial of the century. I don't know what we're going to describe it as, but FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried uh, found guilty on all seven criminal counts in the FTX uh, fraud trial. He's facing more than 100 years in prison. The verdict coming in right before 8 p.m. Eastern time. And Kate Rooney was there in the room, the room where it happened. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Andrew, so the U.S. attorney called this one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The verdict coming almost exactly a year after his crypto company filed for bankruptcy. Sam Bankman-Fried was convicted across the board on seven counts of fraud and conspiracy on lenders, investors, and customers. It was an emotional scene inside that courtroom last night. Bankman-Fried's father burying his head in his hands. His mother was crying as that verdict was read. The defendant, Bankman-Fried, staring straight ahead, looking pretty stoic during all of this. The jury came back with a lightning-fast verdict. They started deliberating around 3 uh, 3 p.m., broke for dinner at 6 p.m., the verdict came in around 7.45 last night. In a news conference, guys, Damian Williams, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, delivering some brief remarks. Here's what he said. Cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. Attorney General Merrick Garland saying that Sam Bankman-Fried thought he was above the law. Today's verdict proves he was wrong. This case should send a clear message to anyone who tries to hide their crimes behind a shiny new thing they claim no one else 
is smart enough to understand. In their month-long case, the prosecution called FTX a pyramid of deceit. They presented evidence showing Bankman-Fried knowingly stole customer money. The defense team saying Mr. Bankman-Fried maintains his innocence and will continue to vigorously fight the charges against him. No official word on an appeal, guys, but that's what we do expect on all this. Wow. We said, you know, you asked how quickly. I think you and both of, both of us said quick. We thought quick. What they call in for pizza? I mean, they, they barely, you know, ate. I, it, that was, yeah, they took an hour. So that was three hours, including dinner. Including dinner. And dessert. There were some people speculating that they had a decision before dinner, but they wanted the free dinner, and then right. they had to. That's typically get how it goes. one more free dinner. Yeah. 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 They did also get free Ubers home. But it was so fast. I mean, we, we were talking at 7.30 about they, they had asked the judge for post-its, highlighters, right. a copy of the testimony. And so we, in our, we thought that they were, I mean, they were obviously doing work back there, but asking for follow-up. So we thought this is absolutely going into Monday and got a, really a surprise verdict around 7.45. Right. And turned around really quickly. Now, the most interesting piece of this, just real quick, because I know we have a guest who's going to help us with this, there's the, going to be the sentencing piece. Yep. But even before that, there was a moment where the judge says to the prosecution, are you still planning to bring effectively a second part of this case um, around um, the campaign, uh, campaign finance, finance yeah. issue, which would be something they would decide on in February? Yeah. Can you imagine them deciding to prosecute him on, on those counts as well? It's, Do you say to yourself, I'm, you know, he's already in prison for the rest of his life, we're, we're good with that? So based, I mean, they, they, this was a month-long trial. They had mountains of evidence where they did talk at certain points about some of the campaign finance violations, and they brought it up in the context of him lying to investors. Uh, it's in February, that's kind of when they have to make the decision, but as, I mean, they've got him for at least if, decades if they right. want. Uh, so I, I would think that they would probably say, you know, let's let's move on. Let's. I, I, I think it just might be fun to see all the, the benefit. Because we've heard yeah. he's, he gave to both parties, but right. I think that's not exactly. Um, I think a lot oh, of people are curious. Well, I think to find one out. party got a lot. Oh, I think it was actually. I mean, I know, but the, 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 you've, you've heard that no one gave more money to, to elect Joe Biden than, than this guy, right? I have I've heard that 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 argument made before, but I think that he I mean, he was giving to all of these sides. Look, the whole thing is just a mess. I, you know, As you know, my view of campaign finance is it's all one massive bribery scheme. So right. it's terrible. Well, no. Well. Yeah, but lightning fast. I mean, it speaks to a how lot of bribery schemes happening that we now know and we care about some. We don't care about others. Joining us now with more. Uh, is John Stark, former SEC Internet Enforcement Chief. He's also the president of John Reed Stark Consulting. You get a lot of, of uh, the closest, his closest associates basically to flip, and this is what happens, isn't it, John? I mean, it, it, all you needed was his, his ex-girlfriend's testimony, and it's probably not a surprise that it didn't take long. No, not a surprise at all. Prosecution did a brilliant job. The evidence came from two sources, you know, these incredible cadre of turncoats of senior executives. I've never seen anything like it with that many senior executives willing to work with the prosecutors for a year to help them with everything they need. And then the documents, the data from FTX itself, the FBI and the DOJ had access to whatever they wanted, the, the people, the data, somebody to come over and explain it to them, the forensics. So this was a a quantity of evidence that was amazing. And then finally, you had a, a, a defendant who just would not shut up everything he said. And the, the prosecution was brilliant at 
impeaching him because he was so, so often saying things that were just completely untrue. He's an absolute sociopath, an absolute egomaniacal lunatic. And he just said whatever came to his mind, whatever he could do to facilitate his scheme. It's it's metaphorical, Joe, in the sense for all of crypto. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. People should not think that it's safe to go back in the water. It's not safe. It's a mammoth house of cards. And if you look at if you look at crypto, crypto web three blockchain, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And Bankman Fried used all of that to promise uh, promises that it was some sort of financial panacea, some sort of way to cure the unbanked, some sort of way to make libertarians feel at ease because the government wasn't involved in their financial transactions. So, so you at this point, you're, you're not just talking about uh, some of the exchanges or the. Uh, the, the companies around crypto, you, for example, okay, crypto covers a wide range. You think Bitcoin is one big scam? You don't think it helps the unbanked at all, John? No, it doesn't at all. There's not a single study that says that. In fact, there are studies that say the opposite. Uh, Tanansen Carmona at the Brookings Institution wrote a fabulous article where she explained that this, that crypto hurts people of color, hurts the unbanked. Michelle Singletary is a legendary journalist for the Washington Post, a financial journalist of 30 years. She wrote a an epic piece in the Washington Post explaining how it is not good for the unbanked. There's not a single study that says that. And, and again, it's just part of any Ponzi scheme. You look at Web3, it's just marketing blather. You look at crypto, it's mathematical computational blather. It represents nothing. There's no cash flow. There's no earnings. There's no balance sheet. There's nothing to it. And if you look at blockchain, which is the foundation of it all, right, this glorified append-only limited writer spreadsheet, you wonder what anyone is talking about. There's a letter, on you can find it on Concern.Tech, from 1,500 technologists saying how absurd it all is. And so some people will say, well, this is bad. This is bad FTX, but blockchain is still great. Well, that's not true. I listen to every earnings call, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle, the greatest database company in the world. What are they talking about with respect to blockchain? Nothing. Crypto is not innovation, Joe. The iPhone, that's innovation. The internet, the cloud, uh, AI—those are innovations. John, we, we had you on actually to talk. We had you on to talk about FTX, and uh, sure. I, I don't know. Wow, did we get sidetracked? Um, but you know, it's metaphorical. It's metaphorical. Well, okay, we we can get. You know, I, I'll bring on. I could bring on ten really smart people that, that would have. That's that the, kind the, of. That is not how you approach the problem. Tell well, smart okay, people. Okay, if, if Paul Tudor Jones or Stan Druckenmiller or Mark Andreessen or any of these guys come on and explain to you exactly how crypto works, it's a, that, we're not going to settle that here. We'll see. I, I think uh, we you can. know, in hindsight, <laughs> we'll see whether the entire thing is as you called it a big Ponzi scheme. But you're like not the, you're not there yet. So let's let's <laughs> stick to the to why you're on today in, for Got SEC it. issues. Um, when you take funds and and you I, I mean i've seen this again and again and again you got one entity you got all these customers then you use their funds to make some big bets and it really works good for a while if you're right about some of your bets you're in a bull market with crypto right. then you can buy the bahama houses and the you know the jets and everything else you right. always end up losing money and suddenly you know you try to uh, you know give your clients their money back and it's not there and that isn't that what happened again here well, what happened is just pure thievery, you know, just stealing eight and a half billion dollars and trying to say it was just um, an accounting glitch. And that, that just doesn't work. So, yeah, you, it comes down to lying, cheating and stealing. The U.S. attorney is absolutely right 
in that sense. But if you're talking about um, just how Sam Bankman-Fried orchestrated the fraud, it's exactly as you say. He used this kind of groupthink by buying people. Look at Kevin O'Leary. He paid him $15 million in fiat, in cash, to go out and say he was great and that FTX was great. So this was a scam where the, the biggest idea, Joe, here, and this is why I'm so emphatic about it, is because it turns victims into victimizers. So you're able to build up this cadre of fanatical cult-like people who have put their life savings into this and are going to help you with your scheme, are going to help say that you're great. And then you get your mom to help you buy Congress with a bunch of unlawful, alleged unlawful, but you can read the FTX um, lawsuit against his mother and father, and his mother helped him do it. Let's figure out how we can buy Congress. That's the secret. Hey, to John, real, is, real quick, John, I yeah. just want to understand. I want to talk legally. Let's just talk yeah. as a lawyer for a second. Yeah. Do, do you believe that the prosecutors will not should they will they bring an additional case around the campaign finance uh, issues? in addition to what obviously has already happened. Do you say to yourself, as a prosecutor, do you say yeah. that, you know what, justice has been served, the guy is gonna die in prison, that's what it is, we're not gonna spend any more taxpayer money on this, we've proven the point? Or right. do you say there's a bigger point that needs to be proven and we wanna actually uh, put this into the public record about the campaign finance issues? Right. What, what, that's, the, that's the discussion and debate now. Okay. So, you know, I worked in the enforcement division for 20 years. I was chief for 11 years. We had to make these decisions all the time. And I, I think they're absolutely going to bring that case for several reasons, exactly like you said, that these are important principles of campaign finance. Now, remember, they might not be able to bring it, given the case that's going on in the Bahamas. But assuming they pass the legal hurdles that allows them to go forward, they might bring it. They might add new defendants. They're going to bring in new facts. The way prosecutors work is they send messages, and big cases send messages. So if you can get a case like this, Andrew, there's been no phenomenon like this ever in history. If you watch YouTube, there are at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen commentators who went to court every day, watched it all, and then went on YouTube to hundreds and thousands, millions of people to tell them what was going on. There was more interest in this trial than the last time I could think about it was OJ. So if I'm a prosecutor and I'm thinking my job is to get the message out, you're talking about spending money. You want to spend money on prosecutorial resources when it gets a message out. And campaign finance reform, it's a cesspool. It's almost as bad as the cryptoverse. And well, so I think that for me, John, if you're the prosecutor, I would bring it. So we're just going to have to stay tuned because we could see BlackRock with its, if there's ever an ETF, Fidelity. Um, the Bitcoin market cap, Bitcoin market cap is 700 billion right now. So there's going to be massive carnage in your view as this entire Ponzi scheme is exposed, and there's going to be egg on the face of all these blue chip firms at some point. Absolutely. Okay. Block all right. Celsius. That's, that's, Every right. one. I can't of them, wait. To, I can't wait to watch. Uh, anyway, John. Uh, actually, it's going to be gut wrenching. It's to watch. not great. It's sad. Right, we'll it's watch. We'll, we'll watch that. That you, you stated your opinion. We'll see what happens. Other people differ. Thank you, John. Good Got it, brother. All right. Okay. Thank you, guys. Coming up. This uh, is fascinating. Oh, sorry. sorry. You're here. I just got here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm late. Snooze button issue. No, I just shut it off. Wow. <laughs> never oh. done that. I was an hour and a half late. That would, that's, that's never happened. <laughs> I, I've never done that in 22 no. years. It gets better when sorry. you get a little bit older because you never really sleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I need an alarm. Oh, sorry, guys. Thank you.
Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, planes, strikes, and automobiles. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg on the UAW deals, air traffic jams, and investing in autonomous driving. The pot of gold, so to speak, at the end of this, this journey is that we could have a radically safer country because, frankly, the track record of human drivers is murderous. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand Joe by. Wow. Joe. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick uh, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And we have a newsmaker at the table later this morning. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will be attending the celebration of the third phase now of the Hudson Yards project. The project will connect the Gateway Hudson Tunnel to Penn Station, replacing the 100-year-old train tunnel under the Hudson River. Secretary Buttigieg. Uh, joins us now. We're going to talk infrastructure, EVs, labor. I want to talk to you about about a hundred things. Good. Uh, now, are you running in the marathon? You're here in New York. The marathon is on Sunday. What do you think? I'm You've in? run marathons before, though, haven't you? Uh, I think half marathons about half as far marathons. as I go. I, yeah. you were I did a half runner. Ironman this summer, which is great fun. But I'm uh, uh, ah. I'm going I'm to cool it for a while. Well, um, I see what you thought. So you're no. headed, you're headed over to Hudson Yards, um, and this is a bit of a a celebra- celebratory moment of sorts Period. for yeah. for for what you guys have been working on in terms of infrastructure. What do you think it actually economically? When people look at something like this, what is the actual implication, um, and and what kind of true dollars uh, economic growth do you think comes off of a project like this? Yeah, I mean, this is about more reliable train service in a, a, a tunnel that hundreds of thousands of people a day count on. It's more than 100 years old. And so what we're undertaking what will be one of the biggest public works projects in modern U.S. history to fix it. Uh, if something went wrong, if that tunnel became unavailable, and it's, again, it's needed that work for years right. and years and years, the economic implications are such that you would feel it at our house in, in Michigan. Uh, meanwhile, of course, there are all the jobs that are created along the way. Just last night, I, I saw a bunch of people in the uh, in, in the community of businesses that are excited to uh, to, to compete for the work that that, right. that is going to be done. So, there's for all of these big public works projects, there's really two economic stories that are back to back. There's, of course, the ultimate benefit of being able to use it, or in this case, knowing that it'll right. be reliable. There's also the benefit along the way of you know construction, engineering, planning, and even just the, the accounting uh, services, the food uh, trucks, all the things that go into that big project. Right. No, the reason I ask is I think we're at, the, we're at a very unique moment where the conversation in this country has turned about spending, mm. spending in this country. What are we spending our money on? 
We're having, we had Stan Druckenmiller on the program uh, earlier this week. We we're just talking about the amount of debt that we're taking on. We're, we're sort of moving from crisis to crisis. We're now going to yeah. spend money on uh, both wars in Ukraine and Israel and, and whatnot. And so I think that there's a big question of how we spend and how do we actually spend in a way that actually makes sense. It's not a short-term solution, meaning construction jobs are great in the moment. Um, may not be great in the future, and how we should actually think about all of this. Well, and, and what I would say is that we're talking here about the supply side, not so much in the 1980s sense of, of what was called right. supply-side economics, but that the dollars need to go into building up the productive capacity of the United States. Remember, the shape of these infrastructure projects into this bill, very different from the last time you right. saw anything like this, which would have been different scale, but, but the stimulus uh, work that was being right. done in 08, 09, right? Then the emphasis was just find a way to get, it was about to it was get that money into the economy however you can, which is why you always heard about shovel-ready projects. Now, yeah, shovel-ready projects, but also shovel-worthy projects because we're interested in building up the right. supply side of our economy. Given your role in transportation, um, what, do you, what do you make of the UAW deal uh, that's just been reached now with, with all three automakers well, and what you think it will do both on the worker side, yeah. which obviously is going to improve their lives, um, but also on the cost side and the inflationary side of vehicles. So the average cost of a car is going to go up by about $900. Look, I come at this from the perspective of a son of South Bend, Indiana. Our, our city was home to UAW Local 5 and UAW Local 9. I saw how the middle class of my hometown was built through the fact, not just that the jobs existed, but that auto jobs were good paying jobs. And our city, even for decades before I was born, was recovering from the aftermath of losing Studebaker in 1963. What we have on our hands right now is obviously a new chapter in the automotive industry starting with some of the new technologies right. that are coming on. And wanting to make sure they're made in the US is a priority of ours. So is wanting to make sure that they are good jobs. Now, um, those good paying jobs mean that there's also a lot of pressure on the companies to innovate uh, in the same way that we put a lot of pressure on them to innovate with our fuel economy standards. But every single time they figure out a way to do it, make a great product, compete. But, but you have to innovate and automate. And that's well, the, uh, that could be the issue, that it forces even, even a quick remove to automation, like to compete with Tesla, which right. is much more automated, yeah. uses far fewer uh, employees per car. So the, the best laid plans could end up hollowing out the same thing you talked about in South Bend that you saw that could happen to this industry based on being non-competitive because of some of these new deals. But, but what happened to South Bend wasn't that that well, happened Studebaker, places, right? right, right. But let's take South Bend as a case study, right? Uh, it, it wasn't that Studebaker became more high tech and, and was using labor in different ways. It's that they couldn't keep with the times, didn't innovate enough. But the Rust Belt itself up. that lost, you know, that became. I mean, all the jobs got outsourced to where it was, it was cheaper, steel jobs, it where was, it was yeah. cheaper, and, and right. that can happen again because now the, the big three is no longer competitive because of these outside. Um, well, I, I, think, I, I think they're going to remain competitive. I think they'll be competing in different ways than they were competing. So it'll in continue EVs. to be interesting. They're I not mean, competitive now with EVs, are they? Look, from one year to the next, you're going to see some of these ups and downs. But I mean, we drive uh, a, a Pacifica. I never thought I was going to be a minivan person. And an then, EV? And then we he had wants kids. one of those. It's, it's a plug in, so it's a hybrid. You want an EV, yeah. right? Yeah. Or you, you want a Pacifica? That's I, the one you mentioned. I totally want a Pacifica. I like a Pacifica. <laughs> yeah. He's got a Pacifica. 
Oh, yeah, so the point is, we, we plug it in, the first 30 or 40 miles runs on electric, then it switches to gas on yep. a long road trip, right? Uh, but my point is that the U.S. auto industry, where they're talking about the, the, the newer companies that, that grew up around this, like a Tesla, or the big three, they're all finding ways to, to compete on, yes, they have to obviously make sure that they keep driving the cost down, but also they're competing on quality. We're excited about that. I think a great motivated uh, labor force right. is can a I, big part of that, too. Can I just ask, I mean, I come from a union background, too. My grandfather was the president of the Carpenters Union in Indiana, but let me just take a look at one of the things they agreed to today that kind of shocked me. The big three is going to be paying the strikers a daily wage for all the days that they striked. I mean, that that seems like a crazy setup because you don't want it to be easy to strike. You don't want it to be, it, it hurts everybody. Yeah, when, but when I people don't are think... on strike, I, I mean, that's what the, the, the funds at the unions were for. Yeah, for they the have a strike funds. fund. But the, but look, the that's idea of just... doing that, that, I mean, that's just like in a negotiation. You don't agree yeah. to pay the other person's attorney fees because you don't want to be back at the table. You want to force people to have to work things out before it gets to that extreme measure. Yeah, but sometimes you do agree to pay the other person's attorney fees. I mean, those are the that's economic crazy. things they worked out at the table, right? And maybe it could have come in a different fashion and, you know, I wasn't there at the table to see all of the different dials that they were turning. But look, I don't think you're ever going to have a situation where workers go on strike lightly. Uh, it's just such it seems like it sets for, it up for them, for their families, as well right. as for the companies. And I think the outcome of this is going to be uh, a level of assurance on the quality of life that comes with these jobs. Remember, this isn't happening in a vacuum. A big part of what they were pushing for was just to have their income grow in a way that corresponds right. with the company's income and with the executives. Uh, Mr. Secretary, let me, let me ask you two related questions, which is you did see our automakers, and I'm, I'm talking about GM and Chrysler specifically, fall into bankruptcy. We, we've seen this movie before. And so the question, and, and I think people could fairly say part of that was a function of an overextension of, dare I say, and I, I, Legacy I, benefits. Of, of benefits to workers. I mean, I think that is almost empirically true, even though it, it may be painful to say, because I think we're all very sympathetic to the workers. And so how do you ensure that, at, especially at a time when there is this transition to EVs? And they were just not, I mean, you saw what the, they warned about. These but that was about these structure. These are billions of losses that yeah, were, were but, they're but, occurring right but now But that was EVs. about the structure of the compensation, not just about the level of the compensation, right? I mean, just the actuarial right. picture of what it meant to compensate people partly through right. defined uh, those defined benefit plans look different by, by the 2000s right. than it did when that became part of compensation. So yes, of course, you got to adjust the model and the structure as well right. as the level. But the bottom line is there, there is more than enough in terms of the value being created for right. more of it to be shared with the workers who create it. That's the premise, and that's what these negotiations have led Speak to. Speak to this as we're talking about EVs. So Nikki Haley was sitting literally where mm. you were sitting just about a week ago, mm. and she effectively made the argument uh, that the country uh, is pushing the automobile makers uh, to go too far and too fast as it relates to EVs uh, on, two, on two functions. One, arguably, and you're seeing this um, playing out just in the earnings and the, the news reports from the automakers, which is to say they're not hitting those numbers because they say there's not enough demand. So that's just a, a market-based issue. But the other piece is that the infrastructure for EVs isn't there, is what she said, both on the uh, charging station issue, and then uh, she argued that actually the cars were, uh, that, that EVs are so much heavier and that we haven't improved our roads enough. I don't know if you, if you want to respond to either of those things. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're improving the roads. It's one of the reasons I'm here in New York. It's one of the biggest initiatives we have. Same thing with the grid, right? If the question is, can we run tomorrow's uh, cars on yesterday's grid? The answer is, of course not. 
but the answer is also not to pickle the old technology and assume that we can make it last forever. The answer is to fix up the grid, which is literally what we're doing. Look, I have to say I'm very skeptical of uh, the prescriptions for the auto industry that come from some of the same people who a decade ago were saying, just let it go bankrupt. Uh, we have to make sure that we are competitive in a future, an those, electric those future. Those prescriptions, a lot of happening. them come from people like Harry Wilson, who was on the board putting things back together last time to, around to make sure they didn't go bankrupt. It's right, not but, just people who were on the sidelines saying this. But my point is, in the my point is the decision to rescue the U.S. auto industry, which I also believe was a decision to rescue communities in places like where I come Correct. from, was and people who were in, Yes, but that people who were involved out. in those decisions are saying a lot of the things that are going this time around are, are too much. But, Back to the original question, I think this is really important. The Trump administration allowed China to take the lead in EVs. And just putting your head in the sand and saying, well, maybe EVs won't be a thing is not an answer. That is how you get uh, another generation of, of rusted out factories and dead companies. Tesla because did pretty well. That's, Tesla Here. did phenomenally well, but at the end of the day, the, the policies of the last administration allowed China to get an edge that we are now racing to overtake. And I believe we will, because we have these policies that not only incentivize demand, but really try to make sure that we're supporting the development of the right kind of market. These interventions are never gonna be a thousand percent perfect, right? And we want the market to do most of the work. But when we see a chance to take care of what is manifestly a public good, like public infrastructure, like roads, like the tunnel that we're announcing today, or like elements of the grid, then that's our responsibility. So if the question is, uh, do you need to take steps to make sure America is ready for this electric future? The answer is, of course. Uh, but we can't use that as an excuse to sit still, because when you right. sit still, you always lose. Um, let's go from the ground to the air for a second, mm. which is there have been a number of reports recently about these sort of near collisions that are taking place uh, with planes. I mean, God forbid that they ever happen, yeah. but they're scary when you read them sure. about these moments that where, where there are these super close calls, super close calls. And it's almost by the grace of God go I kind of thing. It, it, it appears if you're reading these things. Well, let's be clear. It's not the grace of God. It is a multi-layered aviation system that even if one piece fails, another one catches it. The, the aviation safety record in the United States is it's fabulous. I mean, and the, yet, the, and, think about and, it. And yet these reports seem to be worse today than they were five or ten years ago. You tell me that that's wrong. I don't know. And then the question is, if, it, if that is the case, what you need to be doing about that as it relates to training as it relates to having more FAA employees, yeah. et cetera, and technology. Yes, and I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned technology. Which and AI actually, would, AI is part of the picture work. of how you manage the future of, of the airspace because sure. some of these things are computationally complex. So any given, given year, there are a number of what are called runway incursions. And addressing those is the top priority of our new FAA administrator, Mike Whitaker, who just got confirmed. Now, uh, these happen every year, but the only acceptable number ought to be zero. Right. And that's especially true now that we've driven the number of fatal uh, crashes involving airliners to zero most years, which, again, is incredible. If you just think about it, uh, 40,000 people a day, uh, sorry, 40,000 people a year are killed on our roadways. And we kind of just treat it like it's normal. That's like a 737 every single day. Uh, we, we shouldn't accept that on roadways. We don't accept it with air travel. We've got the safest, most complex air system in the world, right. and we're working to keep it that way, which is even not just a, a collision, but even something right. that could have theoretically led to a collision, even if planes were 1,000 feet away. We're going to investigate, and we're going to uh, step up the, the steps to deal with it. Now, you mentioned technology, and I would be remiss if I did not mention that the House Republican mark uh, that they're preparing to vote on that funds our department is 
about half a billion dollars short on the technology and systems that we need in order to keep our system growing. I think most people who, if, if you even have casually followed the news about aviation, you know we need more air traffic controllers and more up-to-date technology, not less. Right. I have one related tech question to bring us back to the ground finally, which is, um, I don't know if you saw, but GM Cruise, mm. the autonomous uh, car, car service that was operating in a number of cities, including San Francisco, mm. effectively has ceased uh, its operations currently in terms of cars on the road, right? They're still doing some training and the like. And it goes to your, to your issue about 40,000 deaths in America yeah. in cars. What do you think is a politically palatable number of deaths by autonomous vehicle in America? The reason I ask is yeah. that to me is fundamentally gonna become the ultimate question. If I told you you could get that number from 40,000 to 5,000, would that, that would be great in the macro, yeah. but if I told you that all 5,000 were being killed by a computer, effectively, would you as a human and a citizen accept that? Yeah. And well, I don't know the answer, it's and I'm a so great curious point. how you think about that. I, I, this, this worries me a lot, too, because our, our, our psychology is, is such that sometimes something that by the numbers is safer doesn't feel that way because it involves less control. The scenario you're describing 80% reduction in roadway deaths is a, safe, it's a safety triumph. And yet, I'm not sure that the American public would accept that level. And that's one of the reasons why we're being extremely rigorous as a, as a regulator in the way that, that NHTSA, our National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, is approaching automation. It's not because we don't like it. It's because we know that, that both in terms of safety and in terms of the psychology of safety, it has to be squeaky, squeaky clean. Look. But you'd read about every death where a person wasn't in control and in graphic detail. Yeah. And then those manufacturers would be liable. Right. So that's a whole other question that the policy cost. world hasn't caught up with. Remember, the division of labor that we have in this country is that we, the federal government, regulate the car and the state, the BMV, regulates the driver. Our system does not contemplate things like liability if the car is the driver. And that's part of what we need to work on in, in the policy How does space. insurance right. catch up with that? There's a million. Yeah, but, but, but the other end of the, the, the pot of gold, so to speak, at the end of this, this journey is that we could have a radically safer country because, frankly, the track record of human drivers is murderous. Right. Uh, Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for joining us. Appreciate Thanks it very, very much. Good luck at the marathon. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I'll be clapping. And good luck uh, a little later today. Thanks again. Thank Next on Squawk Pod, the latest in the Taylor Swift economy, condiments. How Swifties are snacking and how Kraft Heinz is getting its piece of the action. They got bottles out onto the store 19 days after Swift's first appearance at a Kansas City Chiefs game. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. Live Nation Entertainment reporting some star-powered profits. It says here, Ticketmaster's parent company delivered its strongest quarter ever, thanks to some help from Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and some other high-profile tours. 
Higher uh, ticket prices uh, and demand for live shows, boosting revenues by 32% to more than $8 billion, which was above expectations. Live Nation has sold a record 140 million tickets so far this year, compared to 121 million sold for all uh, of last year. Kraft Heinz topping earnings estimates early this week because of higher prices on packaged meals. I spoke to the incoming CEO, Carlos Abrams Rivera, at the CNBC Evolve Global Summit about what he's seeing from the consumer. There's also a number of consumers who actually are more managing the value from a cash flow of their family. And those consumers are making two choices. One, they're looking for more of the, a lower price point overall. And they're also making some choices on the type of grocery stores they go to. So we are making sure we have more availability of the dollar type of products. So that way we can make sure that they're accessible to our brands, but in a price point that allows them to manage their cash. And we're also increasing the number of SKUs we have in the dollar channel, for example. Kraft Heinz is also innovating. The company sped up development of a new product based on a meme of Taylor Swift eating a snack at an NFL game chicken, ketchup, and seemingly ranch. First of all, I love Tete. Uh, so I have uh, <laughs> You're a Swifty? I have, uh, I have, oh my Lord, please come in. That actually was the result of us investing back in our people and in our marketing. So it was a limited edition ketchup and seemingly ranch combination. They got bottles out onto the store 19 days after Swift's first appearance at a Kansas City Chiefs game. It was a record turnaround time. It was a big exclusive that they did for Walmart stores, and this is kind of how they're doing it. They've got brands in stores all over the place, but to be able to give special items to certain stores is kind of how they keep customers in play with it. Pretty good combo. Uh, what is not together? There's something that is ketchup and it's like, mustard. What is, is that? that it's Russian, I think Russian, Russian dressing, right? Or it's, or it's what but, they put on Burger King. Uh, but I think that's that's sauce. how you make Russian. It's like, so isn't this, that, I thought that was like mayonnaise. And, yeah, mayonnaise, mayonnaise and ketchup. Not, and ketchup not ranch. Is, is Russian. Yeah, yeah. So this is ketchup plus ranch, ranch. which I think is tangy. like uh, another uh, it's a pretty good combo. They have some new things put, put together for, for condiment lovers. They have a new in, innovation. Like this is the food service right. space, but their innovation is, you know, the Coke machines where you go in and they have like 3,000 combinations where you can do your own thing. This is just wacky, though. This I mean, is 200 different condiments that you can come up with with a combination of all of those different how, things. And how bad is all this stuff for you? I don't know. You only live once. You only live yeah. once. And, and have what, you ever seen how much sugar is in ketchup? I don't worry oh, about shocking. I don't worry yeah, about sugar though. Shocking. Um, the, the, the Taylor Swift. Okay, Ticketmaster because of Taylor Swift. Craft um, Heinz because of uh, Taylor Swift. Hotels and Marriott that she because of she, Taylor yeah. Swift. How long is this gonna? Is this gonna? Well, NFL sure. ratings because well, of Taylor Swift. Well, the concert tour is gonna go on. It's in South America now, and it's gonna go to Europe next year, and then it comes back to but the United it States. Just so can't, anything just, she touches. But every, it's I, like it, the in Target, I was in Target this week, and they have a special effects, 1989 macroeconomic effects t Taylor, tied Taylor to Taylor Swift. Swift. Yes, there and will Target be diminishing returns at some point. At some point. Yeah. That's it's insane. Ride it while you can. Yeah. And that's Squawk Pod for today, and it's Friday, so for the week. Thank you for sticking with us during this very busy week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts to get the best of our show anytime. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. 
And we are clear. Thanks, guys. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.